Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible Ponder for this week. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 17, and um, I'll read through it and talk a bit about it as we go. Um, it's um, kind of an interesting chapter. There's um, sort of three bits that it gets broken into, and we'll just kind of look at all of them in turn. And, and there's one bit in, in the first part that um, uh, there are obviously plenty of parts of the Bible that I don't know very well, but this was one that I read and kind of had the thought, I don't know if I remember having read this before. So that that's um, quite interesting, but keep in mind the themes that we have sort of running through Luke as we go, themes of conflict and of welcome, and also that theme of looking towards Jerusalem and kind of this impending feeling of heading towards that end, and we'll see kind of flavors of that as we go. So Luke chapter 17, um, and this is labeled um, by the NRSV as some sayings of Jesus. So again, in, in 1516, um, all the way back even to, to 14, we've got a lot of um, sayings of Jesus kind of collected down um, into, in, in just Luke has collected a lot of different sayings and put them all together here. And so it's probably accurate of them to, to title this some sayings of Jesus because they, they might not be um, closely linked, um, but these are linked. But So Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And a millstone is what is used to, to grind grain, but this um, particular word for millstone isn't just um, a small stone that would be used in a home, but um, actually a larger stone that would be pulled um, by like a donkey, if you've seen those um, in, in ruins or sort of reenactments where you have the donkey strapped and it goes around in a circle, it pulls the stone which moves around. Um, that's the word here, so this is a big, um, big heavy stone. This is quite... Um, quite a gruesome end. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. So there, there's um, debate in, in the ancient world about forgiveness and about um about the nature of forgiveness. And so obviously we have the story, if you remember, of, of Jesus talking about forgiveness and Peter coming up with some absurd number, how many times, like seven times. And Jesus says 70 times seven. And um, this is a, a kind of similar sort of teaching, but what Jesus says is if someone sins against you seven times a day and comes back and says, I repent, then you must forgive them. But what's sort of implicit here is the in the idea of repentance is that this is, um, true and honest repentance. So Jesus is using a bit of hyperbole here seven times a day, but it isn't the notion that you should um, just allow yourself to be taken advantage of necessarily, but that if someone comes to you in true repentance looking for forgiveness, then um, you should look to forgive them. Now, obviously, there's bits of forgiveness and situations in which forgiveness is a larger and more nuanced conversation that obviously needs to be had. I think this is talking about pretty normal average interactions and slights. Um, but what Jesus isn't saying is um, you always have to forgive people no matter what their attitude or if someone is going to 
um, do something to hurt you and ask for forgiveness, even though they know they're going to do it again. That's maybe a slightly different conversation. Um, but, but Jesus here is at least stressing the idea that if someone comes to you in true repentance, to forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And the mulberry tree, the, the one that this is probably referencing, has um, roots that spread really wide, so it's really difficult to uproot. And mustard seeds, of course, are very, very small. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you, think this, do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. And that paragraph is one that I don't recognize. And when I read it, I was like, I don't, like, I, I must have read it at some point, but I don't recall um, reading it. And so I find this one very interesting, this, this sort of idea that you are, as Jesus is presenting this, um, a, a farm owner, whatever, and you have slaves who's out working the field, often people... Um, who had slaves, did not have separate slaves for the kitchen, and then other slaves to work the field. It was the same slaves. And so um, Jesus is saying, you don't say to your slave, um, come and sit at my table, be my be my pal. That was not the done thing in, in the culture. Even freed slaves who um, were freemen, um, who were then part of the household, still probably wouldn't be invited to sit at table um, with the owner of the house, but it's an interesting sort of setup here from Jesus. And what he's perhaps getting at, one commentary I looked at suggested that this is proposing the idea that the slave represents our faith and, and that we don't set up the idea of our faith as some sort of grand notion that we celebrate in itself but that faith is in what we do and in the actions we take and in doing what we're supposed to do. And so you don't say to your faith, oh, well done, faith. Oh, you're so great. But that our faith is just sort of part of us and what we do. Uh, but it's an interesting sort of setup for Jesus when normally Jesus is sort of subverting these cultural norms and these ideas of you know power dynamics. Jesus normally subverts them. So it's an interesting saying here um, from Jesus and an interesting story. But basically what he's saying is, do you go out of your way to thank someone for doing what they're supposed to do? Um, and, and that maybe we are also supposed to do what we're supposed to do and not expect a huge amount of thanks. I'm not sure, but it's one of those um, that kind of catches you out um, because there's plenty of of the Bible that um, I don't just know, as, as I think it's true for all of us. On the way to Jerusalem, now we've switched gears a bit. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, which was what they were supposed to do, they called out saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that was what they were supposed to do. So Jesus is not um, circumventing the law here. And as they went, they were made clean. 
Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Now that is kind of the turn in the story. And it's interesting then to show that this one is a Samaritan. I don't know if there were other Samaritans or if it was just this Samaritan and nine other Israelites. Um, but in any case, what it shows is that being a leper made you such an outcast that um, people who were outcasts as Samaritans and outcasts as Jews um, would associate together because they were so outcast from their other societies. So even in, or not to say even in, but in their state of being outcasts, it made them overcome the barrier of Jew and Samaritan. Um, but in any case, the Samaritan turns back and thanks Jesus. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was not one of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And this story is one that um, a former minister who I worked with um, would um, talk about this parable as a, a kind of grounding ethos for his ministry. What he saw as the ministry for the church, often as Christians and as uh, a church specifically, we do things for the community. We do things for people. And it can be a sort of natural impulse to expect something in return, either adherence of people coming along or coming to things more or maybe an increase in faith or some sort of tangible kind of reward. And this minister would talk about this parable as an idea of you will do a lot of things for a lot of people as a Christian and as a church. And not everyone is going to thank you for it. Not everyone is going to um, come back at you with a, with some kind of reward. You might do 10, um, you know, events for people, for the community, and and you won't necessarily get a lot of return, but that's not why you do it. That's not the point of why we do things um, as Christians or as a church. We do it because it's right. And um, this one leper coming back is um, enough justification for Jesus to have done the miracle. And so um, a smaller or meager reward, if any, is enough um, justification for us to, to do what we do as Christians. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. You know, sometimes people thought this was going to be an event, maybe even like a military event or something um, really visible, something really tangible. He answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And this has been a verse that has been um, debated and held on to and, and talked around in a lot of different traditions. Um, famously, the, the author Leo Tolstoy was quite fascinated with this verse and wrote a whole um, big long thing about the kingdom of God is among you or within you. It's, it's kind of various ways to translate it. It's um, present. It's somehow here and not there and not visible. And it's this idea that it's not going to be one big event that you might see, but in fact, maybe it is actually happening now and in Jesus's own life, it's the collection of his life. Then he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. 
Do not go, do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day, Lot left Sodom and rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop with his belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, those who try to make their life secure will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together, one will be taken and the other left. Then they asked him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is one of those um, instances similarly to Matthew 24, where Jesus is kind of blending here um, a sort of looking ahead to possibly and, and most likely 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, the, the Jewish revolt, and then the Roman um, military effort that squashes it, that winds up with the Jews sort of expelled from Jerusalem, and then eventually later on, a couple decades later, expelled entirely from from. Um, the the region of, of Judea and Israel, and um, this is this um, idea that it is perhaps proving him right that once Jesus has come, it's only a short time later that actually the entire temple is destroyed, um, showing that there's no need for it, and and so he's looking forward to that in some ways, but he's also talking about his own suffering, his own death coming. So it's all kind of tied in together, and it's hard to kind of um, take one verse and point to where it's all going because it's all kind of this um, event. And again, it's perhaps helpful to keep in mind what came just before it. The kingdom of God is not coming with events that can be observed, but it's among you now. So it's kind of this idea that it's all this grand um, plan that's unfolding right in front of you. So interesting stuff um, from Jesus there, looking forward to, to the future and his own death. Um, thanks for joining us for Luke chapter 17, and um, we'll see you next week with chapter 18. Good evening.